0: Good morning. How are you all doing today? Blessed. Blessed. Amen. <laughs> I will address the cold elephant in the room again. I do know it's cold in here. But I did turn it on this time, yeah. So <laughs> we're, we're baby steps, baby steps, yeah. The heaters are running. I just uh, need to start them a little earlier next week, so we're going to keep trying to dial that in. I do apologize. However, it is a little bit warmer under the balcony for those of you that are freezing or feel like you're freezing to death. So. But with that, uh, we like to start our services every week by saying welcome to all of you who are joining us for the first time here in our church or if you're joining us online. Uh, yeah, welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today here at Hosanna. I am Pastor Nathan, and today we are going to resume our study of Revelation, looking at the very last part of Revelation chapter 20, which is commonly referred to as the Great White Throne Judgment. And this section of Scripture deals with one of the greatest questions of life, which is the question of death. You know, many ponder the question of death throughout their lives. At various times, people have questions like, where do we go when we die? What happens when we die? Do we simply cease to exist or do we live on in some way? Is there an afterlife or not? Is there a real heaven? Is there a real hell? Or is death just the better place that everybody goes to when they die, right? Oh, they're in a better place. Well, with all that has happened over the last few years with the pandemic and wars going on around the world, mortality is a topic that has presented itself front and center, and it's a topic that is facing everybody in this world, and for those of us that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and who have attained eternal life through His sacrifice, we have the answer. We have the greatest answer, and we're called to be people to share that answer and to talk with people and to be able to dialogue about these very difficult things so that they too can come to know hope. And so this portion of Scripture we're looking at today deals with the questions of life and death. In the verses we'll be looking at, it's, it's filled with words like life and living and dying and death and resurrection. These are all words found in the Scriptures we're going to be looking at today, but it all reinforces the truth that the Word of God has been preaching from the very, very beginning. And the truth is this, that we all live, we all die, and we all will be resurrected. But not everybody lives the same way. Not everybody dies the same way. And not everybody will be resurrected the same way. But before we get into the Word today, we want to spend time praising His name because He is holy. He is worthy. He is God Almighty. He is our Lord and Savior, and he is worthy of our worship. And so we are to be people who worship. Now, if you are cold, get a little crazy in your worship. You'll warm up a little bit, all right? But with that, let's pray and let's start our service. Father, we're so grateful, God, for who you are. We're grateful for what you're doing in our world, in our lives, God. There is a lot, Lord, as we look around and We're still unsure in many ways, but God, those without you, Lord, they just simply are in a world without hope. God, and Lord, as this world is is facing the idea of mortality in so many different ways, and it just seems to be coming one after the other, God, people are asking the questions. People are thinking the questions. People are pondering the questions of what happens when we die. And Lord, your word is, speaks so much about that. Lord, what it means to live, what it means to die, and what it means for forever. And so, God, I pray, Lord, you would speak to us today and teach us today and encourage us today, Lord. The section of Scripture we're looking at is both encouraging and, and challenging, Lord. It's both uplifting and, and, and depressing in some ways, God, but it is the truth, and that is what is most important in the world, truth. And Jesus, we know that you said you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so, God, we want to worship you and praise your holy name. We thank you, God, for everything. Be blessed, Lord. Bless us. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is life? What is living? If you look up the definitions, you'll find that nobody has a solid one, or there's a lot of division on what the definition of life and living is. One of the general definitions is this, the quality that distinguishes matter that has biological processes from matter that does not. And those biological processes are things like metabolism, growth, adaption, response to stimuli reproduction, homeostasis. These are those biological processes, and scientists tend to say that living and life is defined by matter that has those things in in play. And so living then is the state in which matter is animated by those biological processes. Um, Yeah, that's part of it, right? But defining life and living has long been a challenge for scientists and philosophers Mostly because life, living, is more of a process than it is a state of being. And so to date, there are at least 123 different definitions of life that have been compiled and recognized across the scientific fields. Well, Scripture has a lot to say about life and speaks of life and living In three entirely different ways, which kind of sheds some light into why it's so difficult for the secular world to define it. In Scripture, one of the first words we have for defining life is this Greek word, bios. And we get our word biology from this. Um, the biosphere, and, and what that word rem, uh, refers to in the original language biblically is, is the material, physical world that exists around us, right? The biosphere. It's the idea of something having a biological life or physical life, and so this ties into that idea, that definition that I just brought up of, of matter that has biological processes that animate it, and so that's this first word that we find in Scripture to refer to life. The second word that Scripture uses in a major way to refer to life and living is the word psyche. And you might understand what that word is or means, but in, bi- in the biblical context, psyche is the idea of being self-aware, of having consciousness. And so life in the idea of having consciousness, it refers to the idea of the inner person. Psyche uh, is your personality, right? Who you are. It's the life that, the, that psychology deals with. So you got biology and then you have psyche. And it's really the life that science fiction is constantly worried about artificial intelligence gaining, right? When the computers gain sentience and then they launch the nukes and kill everybody, right? It's, it's this idea of self-awareness, the ability to reason. And then the third word that Scripture uses to refer to life or the third word that is translated life in our English Bibles is this word zoe. This is a favorite word of the Apostle John. He uses it some 67 times in his writings. And it's used in the verses we're looking at today. In Revelation chapter 20 verse 12, it refers to the book of life. And it's the book of zoe. This word zoe refers to life In the idea of existing in the condition or state of energized happiness, exuberance, energy, vitality, vigor. Right? It's that idea when we use the phrase zest for life. That's the life that Zoe is talking about. It's a physical and emotional and spiritual life, but it's a sense of all is well, all is good. I'm at peace. I'm content. It, 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 it's, 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 everything is all right. This word zoe in the Greek, however, also carries connotations of property and provision. So it, it's sometimes translated in the idea of your, um, your way of living or your manner of living. And so the idea is, is having this energizing happiness that you have everything you need. Zoe is being in a state of both physical and emotional health and strength and satisfaction and contentment and peace and joy without any sense of loss or lack or worry or fear of not having or fear of missing out. Zoe, biblically, is life. That is transcendent. It's life beyond just the physical existence of matter, the physical earthly existence. It's even life beyond the concept of just being self aware and having a consciousness. It's a word that's used to describe a quality of being alive, a quality of living. And so when John uses the word zoe to reference the forever state of contented peace that believers will have, you'll often see that as prefaced with the word eternal. And that's where we see this phrase in Scripture, eternal life. The eternal life, the eternal state of contented peace and joy and happiness that is promised to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, when we see this word zoe in Scripture without the word eternal in front of it, it's referring to a state of existence that includes now, today, here on this earth, where there's no worry, there's no lack, there's no want, there's peace, joy, contentment, here, that everything is good here, I have everything I need here. And we see that this type of life that the Bible talks about is available both now and forever because in John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus was speaking about this life and he says, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That word has speaks of a current and ongoing state of being, that if you believe Jesus, You believe God. You hear the words of Christ, and you put faith in those things. Faith in who he is and what he did. You have now eternal life. And all that that zoe refers to, that peace, that contentment. And then it says, and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Has passed is a past tense verb tense. Now, we're gonna talk more about death later because again, today we're talking about life, death, and the resurrection. But death is not just physically dying. And here in John five twenty four, when it says, you've passed from death, and life, from death to life, it's not talking about just passing from a physical death. The idea of death is the, the, the state of deadness that results from being separated from God. That's death in the context here. And so it's the hopelessness, the absence of peace, joy, and contentment, the absence of life or Zoe, the absence of that exuberant, energizing joy that comes from a relationship with your Creator. That idea of being able to live now, knowing that we're going to live forever in a sense of it's all good because I'm saved. I'm all good because I belong to my Creator, I'm His child. And he is taking care of me in every possible way now and forever. So, all that are physically alive, all that have life, bios, right? Um, that's every human. Every human that has been, been born has bios. Every person that has been uh, born also has psyche. We all have a self awareness, we all have a consciousness. But not all humans will have Zoe. We all have life bios, we all have life psyche, but we will not all have life zoe. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. And so physical birth, yes, brings a type of life and living. But unless you gain the spiritual life, zoe, unless you are born again, well, the Bible has a whole lot to say about that specifically that you will not see the kingdom of heaven. So zoe only comes through a spiritual birth according to the teachings of Scripture because it's connected to spiritual life. It's connected to peace. It's the real you, right? This this is just a, a shell we inhabit. The physical body is just a shell we inhabit. But the real you, your soul, your spirit being born again through a relationship with Jesus Christ, your spirit being made truly alive, the real you, the real life, the, the being alive beyond just having a heartbeat. Zoe only comes through Jesus. It's through a relationship with him. It's what Jesus said in John fourteen six, where he said, I am the life. I am the Zoe, Jesus said. And so... Just like all will have life, right? We're all born. We all have a consciousness. But not all will have life in the same way. Not all will have zoe. All will die, but not in the same way. You guys know what the greatest statistic ever is? One out of one people will die. It's been the going rate for a long time. It's the greatest statistic ever. Yet, knowing that, we spend billions of dollars each year in the cosmetic industry trying to prolong this life, trying to make ourselves look younger, feel younger. But death is a part of life. Death is a part of life, so much so that, that in God's word, death is mentioned or discussed or talked about 394 times. One of the most famous scriptures that deal with death in scripture is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 2, right? a very famous song written about this where it says there's a time to give birth and a time to die. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says it is appointed for people to die once, and it's speaking of physically, but after this, judgment. So like living, most in our world today only think about dying in a physical sense. They think you, you die, you go into the grave, that's it. That's what death is. But like living, there is way more to it than just that. And this is what brings us to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 speaks of this thing called the second death. The second death. In verse 6, after he talks about those who know Jesus Christ, who experienced the first resurrection, he says the second death has no power, no authority over them. But then in verse 14, it tells us that death in Hades and those whose names were not found in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And then in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, it says, But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So Scripture teaches us that there is a first physical death, but then there is a second death, something that's worse than the first death physical death now if we think of death purely in a physical sense then our conclusion will be that death is the end right that when our biological life ceases life is over now from a bios perspective that's true but biblically the overarching concept of death is is separation not expiration does that make sense the concept of death spiritually from the word of god is one of separation not expiration you see when we when we die the first time physically the bios life perishes but then our soul is separated from our physically bought our physical body and that soul being separated then has some uh, processes to go through now Eventually, spiritually, there is then a further, worse separation called the second death, which is eternal separation from the presence of God forever, which is the result of not being saved. So the idea here is dying here on this physical earth, having your physical body die is not the worst thing. The worst thing is standing before God Almighty unprepared unredeemed, unsaved, that is the worst thing and what we're gonna see in the scripture today because that is what leads to eternal death, eternal separation from God, the opposite of eternal life, the opposite of eternal joy and peace and perfection and contentment. It's not a ceasing to exist, but an eternal existence in the lake of fire, hell. And instead of eternal peace and joy and contentment, instead of exuberant happiness in the presence of God, which is zoe, life. It's an eternal suffering and pain and torment separated from God. The opposite of zoe, the lack of zoe, and is called death. So we have to understand when it comes to the concepts of life and death, the bios, the physical life, will cease one day for everybody, one out of one of us are gonna experience physical death. Sure, there have been a couple throughout history who escaped that, and those are very special and unique circumstances. But for the rest of us, we will one day experience the death of our physical life. But your soul, the real you will live on past that point. The real you would continue past that point. And someday, Some will experience the second death. Some will die the first time, and that's the only death for them because they have eternal life in Jesus Christ, and they will go on to eternal living. As verse 6 said, the second death has no power over them. But for others, they will then die the second time because they never received the free gift of salvation. We have to understand this because it colors our evangelism. It colors our life, our living it, 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 it informs the decisions we make. Like so many of us do get caught up in living for this physical life and we forget about the eternal. But the Bible says that this physical life is but a vapor in comparison to the eternal. That this life is a wisp of smoke. It's here and it's gone. And then it's forever. And the most important decision anybody will ever make is where you're going to spend forever. Now, you guys remember in the garden, God said to Adam and Eve, on the day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Now, we understand that he didn't just mean that the body would die, that the body would physically decay, the body would Cease to exist, which, which, which does happen, right? Death entered the world, and therefore our physical bodies then age, and we get sickness, and we get disease, and, and all of that. But what he meant there is that your spirit would also die. That the spirit of man was then separated from God by sin. The spirit of man was corrupted, and all that comes with that. And if one doesn't take the opportunity to be born again, as Jesus said, If one doesn't take the opportunity to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ, to have their spirit reborn in this life, then their state of spiritual death due to sin will end up permanent in eternity. And so, thus, you can say that some are born twice and die once, and others are born once but die twice. So, we all live, but not the same. We all die but not the same. And we will all experience resurrection, but not the same. Daniel chapter 12 verse 2, speaking of the end of all things, says, many who sleep in the dust of the earth, which is a biblical euphemism for death, for that physical death, says, will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. That is what we see in Revelation chapter 20 verses four through six and verses 11 through 15. It's two resurrections. One of them is explicitly referenced and the other one is inferred. But we see these two resurrections in Revelation 20 separated by the 1000 year millennial reign of Christ upon this earth after the tribulation period. The first resurrection is a resurrection of of dead believers, those who had put their faith in Christ, who had then physically died, but they're they're gonna be resurrected. And this happens prior to the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. But the second resurrection that we see in verses 11 through 15 appears to be a resurrection of dead non-believers. And it happens after the millennial reign of Christ. Now, before we jump into those verses all of that to set up this idea. The word resurrection, I want to talk about that. The word resurrection is a word used um, in the New Testament about 40 different times. It's the Greek word anastasis. But here's what's interesting. The word anastasis in most of the cases, I think in all but two cases, the the word refers to a physical corpse rising from the dead. Think about that. In 38 of the 40 places in the New Testament where you read the word resurrection, it is referring to a physical corpse rising from the grave. It's primarily a literal word, referring to a literal physical happening, meaning it's not primarily, primarily metaphorical. It's a literal word referring to a, a literal thing. It's not symbolic. In John chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said this. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. Very similar to what Daniel said in chapter 12, verse 2, that all who have physically died are going to be resurrected, and the word that is used seems to refer to a physical bodily resurrection And some are going to be resurrected to life. Some are going to be resurrected to condemnation. And so what's interesting is this idea here, it seems to indicate that the resurrection being talked about is a resurrection of a physical body. What does that mean for our understanding of resurrection as believers? Well, when a person dies physically, whether they're saved or unsaved, their body dies. Begins to decay, goes into the grave, but their soul isn't separated from the body, as I already mentioned. Scripture teaches us this. So that physical body then dies, it's left to decay, um, but the soul, the real you, continues on with consciousness. There's awareness. But what happens to your soul depends on whether or not you're saved, whether you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, there was a word for hell um, that was used a lot, and the word is sheol. All right? Um, in the New Testament, the, the, the same concept, the word is Hades, all right? So Sheol and Hades are two different words biblically that really describe the same place. It's this place called the abode of the dead or the, the abode of departed spirits. Guess what that place was? That was the place where the conscious souls went after the physical body died. We read about this in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. I don't have time to go through it in detail, but it's in the Gospels, where Jesus tells a story about, about this man, Lazarus, who, who dies, and, and, and he ends up going down to, to the abode of the dead because his physical body dies. But that abode that he's in is, is one side of this, this two-compartment area. The side that this Lazarus goes to is called paradise. It's called Abraham's bosom, which we get in the story that it's the place of the soul's The righteous souls, when people die, if they were God-fearing, God-believing, God-following people, they went to this place called Abraham's bosom where they were waiting for something. Jesus hadn't died yet. But in that story of Lazarus and the rich man, we have on the other side of the gulf, there's this big chasm in the middle, on the other side of the gulf is this place called Hades, otherwise known as Torments, and it's where the souls of the unrighteous went We read in that story that there was no escape from this place. That the people that were in this place were conscious. They were aware. They still had psyche. Because the guy is going, it hurts. I'm suffering. The pain is too much. I'm dying of thirst. Like, please. And he's screaming across the gulf, please, go back and tell my brothers that hell is real so that they don't come here. Now, we use the word hell But biblically, there's a few different notations of this, and we're going to get to more of that in a little bit. But Hades, this abode of the dead, we see that there's a consciousness there, that there's an experience of suffering and pain there. There's recognition there. There's regret there. Now, after the resurrection of Jesus, we learn from New Testament teachings that that everybody that was righteous, all the dead before and all the dead after, they are now in the presence of God upon the expiration of the physical body. That all the souls in Abraham's bosom were taken by Jesus to heaven into the presence of God. That's inferred from scriptures we're going to look at in a second. But those that were in Hades on the punishment side are still there up until what we see in Revelation chapter 20. Now again, we get the the fact that the righteous are no longer down there. They're in the presence of God because in Philippians chapter 1 verses 21 through 25, Paul teaches Um, a very important section of Scripture, and says basically, you know, to die is gain, right? He says, I long to depart and to be with Christ. He doesn't say I long to depart and go to the waiting place waiting for something to happen, and then I will be with Christ one day. The teaching as Paul wrote this letter was to die is to be in the presence of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says being away from the body is being present or being at home with the Lord. So there's this and other scriptures that give us the indication that from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as he defeated death, as he rose from the grave, and the scripture tells us that he is the first fruits of resurrection, that then all who would physically die in faith in Christ in trust in him from that point would then be, their souls would be in heaven with God in his presence. And then throughout our study of Revelation, what we've seen is that chronologically, one day there will be a rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first. What's rising? Their souls are already in the presence of God. It's their physical bodies. And then it says we who are alive will join them and meet the Lord in the air. So the Bible does teach that there's a generation of humans at the end who won't experience physical death. They'll be translated, caught up in a twinkling of an eye it says. But those who are already in the grave at that point will experience the first resurrection. And then you have the tribulation time where there's this judgment being poured out on the earth. We studied that for months and months and months, right? And then we also learned that many get saved during this tribulation time and then are martyred, are viciously slaughtered for their faith in Jesus Christ. And then we read about the second coming of Jesus at the end of tribulation, where then he ushers in the millennial kingdom. But this is what we read in Revelation chapter 20, verse four through six. John says, then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads. He's talking about those tribulation saints. What does it say there? They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That phrase, came to life in the Greek, is the act of being physically resurrected. So there's a resurrection of the physical body here. Verse 5, the rest of the dead, and in the Greek that refers to all other remaining dead who have ever physically died, did not come to life, same phrase, physically resurrected, until the thousand years were completed, and that's how we know there's a first resurrection and a second resurrection. Then he says there this, referring to the resurrection of these believers is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Hallelujah. So the first resurrection, we talked about this in a previous study real briefly, but it involves a few different groups of people because of the references to the thrones and these people ruling and reigning with Christ and other scriptures as well. So in Daniel chapter 7, we read that the Old Testament saints will rule during the millennium. They will be resurrected and ruled during the millennium. So they're alive. It's not referenced here in Revelation 20, but we find that in Daniel 7. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, the 12 apostles said, hey, Jesus, what do we get out of following you? And he says that in the millennial kingdom, you will be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, they bodily died, so we know that they're going to be resurrected. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 2, Revelation 3, and Revelation 20, verse 4, we see these people that are in heaven sitting on thrones, ruling and reigning with Christ. We know from Revelation chapter 4 that that is the church, the bride of Christ, that is raptured up into heaven prior to the tribulation. Now again, as we saw in First Thessalonians, some of that church that is raptured up, some are going to be dead, and they're going to be resurrected, and some are still alive and caught up into the air with the saints. Paul supports this in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one, where he says, we will not all die, but we will all be changed, speaking of the resurrection and the tribulation time. So in Revelation 24, we see that those that are killed because of their testimony and not taking the mark of the beast, these are the tribulation saints, they're resurrected here. And so we see that there's, there's these people that are resurrected to rule during the millennial kingdom, and that leads to the question, well, if the resurrection is a physical thing, are they zombies? Like, are they skeletons? Like, if the physical resurrection is taking place, what, what do they look like? What is happening here? Well, Paul wrote in Philippians 321, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. You see, the Corinthians were asking the same questions of Paul. Okay, cool. There's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a bodily resurrection. What are our bodies going to look like? They were asking the exact same questions. And so if you read 1 Corinthians 15, this is, you know, I like how Pastor Rick gave homework. Go read it. All right? The whole chapter is about all of this. We don't have time to go through all of it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 35, it says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? And Paul goes on to answer this question. Um, very important chapter in regards to all of this. But Paul teaches how... Um, the truth that Jesus himself was bodily raised is essential to the gospel, right? He starts talking about that in 1 Corinthians 15. Then he goes on to say the fact that Jesus was bodily, physically raised is an essential part of our faith. It's an essential part of sharing our faith. It's an essential part of our own future hope. Then he goes on to talk about how Christ's resurrection was the first fruit, right? He was the forerunner, the first bodily resurrection of all others who will be bodily resurrected. Paul teaches then how Christ's resurrection guarantees ours. And then he gets into the nature of the resurrected body. He opens with giving a picture of how a seed goes into the ground and then it becomes something else, right? So they're kind of of or same likeness from the same form but completely different. And then he goes on to say this in 1 Corinthians 15, 40. He goes, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from the earthly ones. What he's talking about here is there's planets and there's stars and there's suns and all this type of stuff. He goes, there is the splendor of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. Sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is a spiritual body. So in other words, what Paul goes on to teach there, answering the question that if there is a physical resurrection of believers, what do our bodies look like? Because some of us had been in the grave for a long time at that point. He says our spiritual, heavenly, resurrected bodies will will be vastly different. The bodies, like the seed to a plant, there's, there's, there's a connection to form there, but they will be vastly different. Now, how different? Well, I can't tell you what it will look like. Right? Some of you are like, can my eyes be a different color? I'd always wanted blue eyes or green, right? That, that's not the point, right? Can I be taller, shorter, whatever, right? No, this is what he gets into. He says there's a difference in durability. He goes, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Those words corruption and incorruption um, are referring to the fact that this body is perishable, Right? When this body dies, when this bios dies, it goes into the grave and it decays, right? We're we're aware of that. But the new body is immortal. It will never decay. It's a difference in potential. He goes, sown in dishonor, raised in glory. You know, since the fall of man, our body and our mind, it's it's, it's really been reduced in capacity to, to do the will of God and to really glorify God. Why? Because sin entered in. That was the result of the fall. That word dishonor means to exist in a state of shame and disgrace. So because of the fall, these physical bodies are sown in dishonor, that they exist in a shame of disgrace and and, and all that, and it's because of sin. Sin is with us, and the Bible talks a whole lot about that. But in our glorified bodies, not there anymore. There's a difference in power. He says sown in weakness, raised in power. That weakness is referring to just the physical weakness, right? Today, our bones break. Today's, today, we, we get sick, right? James, my grandson, sneezed in my mouth. Guess what? I got sick. That's how it happens. Some of you experience that, right? Our bodies are weak. They get disease. All this stuff can be caught, but our glorified bodies raised in power. No disease, no sickness, no broken bones, none of that. And then there's a difference in capacity when it says sown a natural body and raised a spiritual one. You know, these bodies that we have here, these these earthly physical bodies, they they work pretty decent here on earth with the parameters and the conditions that that we live in, right? These bodies are are subject to the parameters of this particular physical universe we're in. We're, We're subject to gravity. We're subject to time. We're subject to space, right? These bodies are suited to a physical Life here on earth. But in the first resurrection, the resurrection of believers, it says we are raised with a spiritual body. We are given a body that is suited for eternal life. We are given a body that is suited for living forever in the presence of God, our creator, the lover of our souls, Jesus Christ. Remember that? Moses in the physical body? Just let me see you, God. He's like, whoa, you'll burn up. Hide in the rock, I'll walk by, you'll see the afterglow. Still messed him up. This body can't handle the presence of God. That's why God's going to resurrect us bodily into a new glorified body. That's the first resurrection, but then we have the second resurrection. The resurrection of, of the ungodly, the unbelieving dead. Now, I believe this is the unbelieving dead, Uh, for a few reasons. One is, is, one, it's not the first resurrection because this happens after the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, right? Verse five told us that the rest of the dead did not come to life during the thousand years or until after the thousand years were completed. In that chronology, we understand that the resurrection of the saints has already happened, which was the New Testament saints, the Old Testament saints, the Tribulation saints. They've all been resurrected into these glorified bodies, ruling and reigning with Christ for a thousand years by this point. And then Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, we have this little glimpse of like a final satanic rebellion at the end of the millennial time. Satan is let loose. He rallies all the people who, no matter what, we hate God. Final battle, not really a battle. And then verse 11. At 11.03, we got here. All right, let's do this. Then I saw a great white throne and the one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, The great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I think this is the most sobering, serious, somber setting in all of Scripture. This is the final judgment of unbelievers, the final consignment to eternal punishment for those who refuse Jesus Christ in this life. And You notice there that the language is very plain. It's it's very straightforward, right? It's, It's not embellished. He doesn't go into, like, gory details. It's, it's just a straightforward recitation of the facts. This is what has taken place. This is what is happening. There's no debate here about innocence or guilt, none. It's just the evidence presented. There's a judge, but there's no jury. There's a prosecutor, but, but no defender. There's a sentence without appeal. There's punishment without parole. It's jail forever without escape. And we saw this again in John five twenty four, 24, a, a, a look forward to this where Jesus said, Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under the judgment Come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly I tell you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he is granted to the Son to have life in himself." And he has granted him the right to pass judgment because he's the son of man. He's the prosecutor. He's also the judge. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. And then just to keep the context, remember what Daniel 12.2 said, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. The resurrection to life, the resurrection to eternal life has already happened at this point. It happened prior to the millennium, and so this is a resurrection to condemnation, the resurrection to disgrace, the resurrection to eternal contempt, it tells us. And it's a very ominous scene, right? He says, I saw this great white throne. That means what you probably think it means, right? This magnificent, giant, pure, beautiful throne of authority. It's a kingly seat, a remarkably magnificent kingly seat. And it says, the earth and heaven fled from the presence. Now, that has a couple different ideas. One, uh, some people look at that and they say, oh, it just means it ceased to be visible. Like, you've ever seen the movie where you're, like, you're on earth and then you zoom out and you see earth and then earth goes, and flies away from you. And then all the planets, right, you're zooming out. Some people go, that's just what it means, that, that they weren't visible anymore. Others look at this and mean, are interpreted to say it's they ceased to exist, which is I believe it means. Um, because the very next chapter, chapter 21, opens with the new heaven and the new earth were now on the scene because the first had passed away, and that phrase passed away literally means ceased to exist. So this is the moment where the creation as we know it now is undone. It's gone. Scripture talks about this. Scripture talks about the dissolving of the elements and all this stuff at the end right, when God just says, okay, it's done, it's all over, he wipes it out, and nothing else exists but God sitting on his throne, and this is the moment of this final judgment of the unbelievers, and so it says the dead are here, they're now standing before the throne, that whole idea of standing um, is the idea that they're, they're, they're standing up, right, We get the idea that they're bodily raised here because, again, verse 5 said, the rest of the dead did not come to life, physical resurrection, until a thousand years were completed. And so that phrase, come to life, means they're, they're physically, bodily raised at this point. Now, it's interesting, though. Instead of being raised in a glorified, incorruptible body as the saints were, it seems that they're raised in the body of sin and death the body of sin that they embraced during their physical lives. Again, what is that going to look like? I don't know. Are they zombies? Are they skeletons? Are they reconstituted somehow? It doesn't tell us. But we do know from the words of resurrection that are used, it is a bodily resurrection. But I do think there's a contrast because of the body that the believers get versus the body of sin and death that they are resurrected into. It says the great and small. That tells us that it's the somebodies, the nobodies, the rich, the famous, the poor, the obscure, all together in some macabre fellowship of the damned here at the end of all things. All who rejected Christ, now standing before him, without him as their savior, all who ever said, I don't need Jesus I don't need him for salvation. I'll stand on my own works. Look, I'm a good person. I'll stand on my own record. And he goes, Okay, let's look at that record. And it tells us in the books were opened. Now, what's in the books? Well, it tells us their works, because that's what they were judged according to. They were judged according to their works, it tells us. That's the idea of everything that was ever said, ever done, ever thought, every intent, every motivation, every reason. It's a perfect record of their life here on earth. And I believe this is specifically the unrighteous dead because it says twice that they are judged according to their works that are written in the books. Believers are not judged according to our works, our deeds in that sense. We're judged according to our faith in Jesus Christ. and although they are judged according to their works i'll also add that they're also judged according to what is not written in the books because it says there is books opened and then it goes and the book of life so here's your record yeah look at all the good things i did <laughs> well if you really want to talk about the record i've got every detail but it doesn't matter Because let's cross-reference that with the book of life. Is your name written in the book of life? Did you ever put your faith in Jesus Christ? That action, that deed isn't here. It tells us that the sea then gives up its dead. The sea is a is often used as a a picture, an allegory of a place of the unburied dead, right? Because people would lose their lives at the sea. Their their bodies often never recovered. They're unburied. And so, including this, I believe, is just a picture of the universal scope of the moment. It's saying all who have ever died without Christ are here. None escape this moment. Oh, well, I was never buried. Ha-ha, loophole. Nope. So, The determination is is not based, it's it's based solely on whether or not you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, whether your name is found in the book of Zoe, Jesus who is the Zoe. Have you trusted in him? Because no other work will save you. No other work. And then it says death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the very last echoes of sin being being completely eliminated fully, right? Death, which is the separation from God, which is the result of sin, both physical separation, um, both spiritual separation, all of that. Death, which is the result of sin itself, is judged and cast away. And then it says Hades, which is the abode of the unrighteous souls, which is the result of physical death, right? You die without Christ physically, you would go into this waiting place, if you will. That's gone. It's emptied out. Final judgment has arrived. And then the lake of fire. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Sheol and Hades were these Hebrew and Greek words that were used for the place of the dead. Sometimes people would refer to it as hell, right? But, but hell is a little more complicated than our one English word. And so Sheol and Hades, it was this, this, this place, this, this, com- this area that was separated into two compartments. One's had the uh, place of the uh, unrighteous dead, and, and it held the place of the righteous dead as well. Now, that's where souls went when they were separated from the physical bodies up until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Once Jesus Christ was resurrected, the righteous dead were now instantly in the presence of God to be separated from the body, is to be in the presence of the Lord. But the unrighteous souls that are separated from their body, I believe, are still there until this moment, until this final judgment. Now, it doesn't mean that they're in this waiting place with, you know, 4K TVs and nice Wi-Fi and they're just like, well, you know, hell's coming, but we're good. No, it's a place of suffering and torment. Again, go back to the parable of Lazarus. It's not even a parable. I believe it's a historical rendition. Lazarus and the rich man. But in Mark 9, Jesus mentions hell. He uses the word hell in our English Bible. um, And he calls it a place of unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. Now, the word hell that Jesus uses there in Mark 9 is not Sheol or Hades. It's a word called Gehenna. Gehenna is a translation of the Hebrew word that referred to the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was this place outside Jerusalem's walls that had been desecrated by Molech worship and human sacrifice and really disgusting idolatry. And, and what they turned it into was a, was a garbage dump. They would throw all their garbage out there in this place, the Valley of Hinnom, and they would burn the garbage out there. But the place was, was just so foul that the fire that burned there burned 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The fire never went out. And it was just this festering place of destruction. And, and there was these worms that would crawl around and eat because they would throw dead bodies out there and they would do all kinds of stuff. So the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, made for a very graphic and effective picture of the fate of the damned in the lake of fire. And so that's where this idea of the lake of fire comes from. This is what's pictured by the phrase, the lake of fire. It's what's being characterized. It's like the lake of fire. Remember the Valley of Hinnom, that 24-hour burning that never stops, the fire that is never quenched? That's what hell is going to be like. That's the idea here. That Gehenna, this hell, is the place, incidentally, the lake of fire is the place that Jesus said, this wasn't even created for people. It was created for the devil and his demons. And this place is the place of the second death, not a ceasing from existence, but an eternal, perpetual, never-ceasing burning, and never-ceasing torment, and never-ceasing hopelessness and agony in complete contrast to the eternal life promised in Christ. It's a forever of suffering and isolation and loneliness and despair and hopelessness. And this is the ultimate result of a complete and total separation from God. This is truly death in contrast to true life. Now, how terrible it's going to be on that day for the resurrected ungodly. How terrible it is going to be on that day to hear once and for all from Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, as he looks upon these dead standing before him and he says, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, we all live, we all die, we will all be resurrected. But there's a big difference in the manner for all three of those things. We all have life, but not everybody has been born again to spiritual life. We all die once, but you don't have to die the second death. We will all be resurrected, but Jesus said some will be raised to life, and others will be raised to condemnation. So yeah, if you were born once, if you were only physically born but never are born spiritually, you will indeed die twice. But if you are born twice, once here physically on earth and the other spiritually from above, you will only ever die once physically. This body will die, but you will then never die spiritually. You will never experience the second death. Instead, you will be resurrected into life into a glorious body, fit to exist forever in the presence of your creator. Every single person who has ever lived will have eternal consciousness. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, the hope, what we look forward to is a permanent connection to and a relationship with our creator in a glorified body free from the curse and presence of sin, free from death and sickness and disease, an eternity with perfect life, perfect zoe, a forever of, of exuberant, contented, peaceful, joyous happiness. Hallelujah. That is what we offer the lost when we share the gospel with them. It's not that their life will be better here on earth. That can happen. doesn't always happen. It's not that, you know, hey, all your problems are going to instantly go away. Any Christian in here have problems? <laughs> right, two hands, I like that. <laughs> but we have life because we know the one who is life. And we know that this life is a vapor and what awaits us is forever in eternity. But the question is, is it going to be eternity with God in heaven? Or is it going to be eternity in the lake of fire, separated from God forever? That is the question before you. That is the question before every living human being. And so I pray that if you know Christ, that you are encouraged and blessed by what's to come. But I pray the reality of what's to come for those who don't know him puts a burden on your heart. To share the gospel with those who don't yet know him. To do it lovingly. To do it boldly. To do it confidently. We don't share the gospel because we're perfect people. We share the gospel because we're broken people just like them, but we've been saved. And so share the gospel with people that they too would come to know the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, God, we. God, this is a somber piece of scripture, Lord. Um, we're so thankful, God, and grateful and truly excited by the life we have in you. But God, when we contemplate the fate of those who don't yet know you, God, some of those being friends and family members we have, Lord, it should give us an urgency. It should give us a passion. It should move our hearts, Lord. And I know for many of us, it does exactly that, God, and we thank you for that. But Lord, may we be people that understand that this life here on earth isn't it. May we be people who understand that, that dying here physically in this body isn't it, but that there's a life after and a resurrection to come, God. And true life, eternal life, only comes from knowing you because you are life. God, we're grateful for this glimpse at the end of all things. God, we're grateful to know that evil, wickedness, will truly and finally and fully one day be dealt with. That death, the separation from you, God, spiritually, the separation from you in every way, God, the the absence of that zoe in our life, God, the result of sin will be defeated forever and completely. That God, we know that after this life, it's heaven or hell, and that we would desperately cling to that hope that we have in you, God, as we faithfully share that hope with others as often as we can, Lord. Bless us, God. Lord, we're excited to get to the rest of this book, Lord, and to look at the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, and it's just going to be beautiful. But Lord, help us to live every day now in this life for you. To live every day in obedience to you. To live every day pursuing you. Yes, God, we got to go to work and we got to pay bills and we got to clean stuff and we're here, Lord. But you said, while we're here, preach the gospel to every nation. Help us to do that, Lord, as individuals. Help us to do that as a church, Lord that souls would be saved. God, we pray for our friends and family members that don't yet know you, God, that they would come to know you and give their life to you. And God, I pray for any in our room right now or watching online that don't yet know you, God. Lord, I pray, God, that as they realize their need for you as our Savior, that right now they would pray with me and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you are God. I know I've broken your law. I know I've sinned against you. I know because of that, I deserve judgment. But God, I believe your word. I believe your gospel. I believe you. When you say, if I call out to you, if I put my faith in you, that I will be saved, I will be forgiven. God, I want my life changed, and I invite you into my life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit that I would live for you. Help me to stand against my flesh. Help me to say no to sin. Use me, Lord, to lead others to you. Thank you for loving me so much. Thank you for saving my soul. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I pray you would all be blessed, blessed. We have a future and a hope to look forward to and that is awesome and that is so exciting. But we're not meant to just go there by ourselves. We want to take as many people along with us as we can. And so pray for opportunities to be an example, to be a witness of Jesus Christ, to share your hope, to share your testimony, to share what God has done in your life with others because that testimony is powerful to what God can do. Because no matter, no matter what, we're all going to die physically. But not all of us are going to die a second time. And that's the goal is to make sure nobody else has to suffer that. Share the gospel with them. Be filled with the Spirit. Be blessed. Be empowered. Step out into what God is calling you to do. Because the future hope for those who trust in Jesus Christ is glorious. It's awesome. Amen? God bless you guys.